This conversation was originally presented as part of the BioLynx Alliance Greater and Squirrel Gliders Symposium. Here are keynote speakers, Dr. Kara Young and Tob from the Australian National University, PhD candidate Benjamin Wagner from the University of Melbourne, and Associate Professor Craig Nitschke from the University of Melbourne answer audience questions about greater glider conservation. And the first thing I'd like to do is just an acknowledgement of country. So BioLynx Alliance is proud to acknowledge the traditional owners of the places where we live and work. We recognize and respect the enduring relationships they have with their lands and water, and we pay our respects to elders past, present and future. I would like to just remind everyone um, that this is an interactive session. So while you have the ability to turn your microphone and camera on, we're just going to ask that you please keep them off um, as it'll just mean that everyone is able to see just the uh, panelists for the session rather than having everyone's camera show up. Uh, and I would also like to remind people that this session is being recorded. So if you do turn your microphone or camera on, your image and voice may be captured. Um, so please be aware of that as well. Uh, like I said, this is an interactive session. So we're looking for people to ask questions. So if you do have a question, you're welcome to um, submit it via the chat feature, which you'll see at the bottom of um, which you'll see at the bottom of your um, Zoom screen. Uh, and you're also welcome to uh, um, ask to turn your microphone on and we can, we can take voice questions as well. Um, I'll get started first of all. I know that Gail, from, Gail Osborne from Wombat Forest Care has, um, has a question. So Gail, if you are with us, um, please feel free to turn your microphone on and your camera on if you'd like um, and we can we can get your question started are you there gail yes here we are hello i'm here i don't seem to be able to turn my camera that's okay um, it's okay oh yes i'm on i seem to have a camera um so craig how do you model for wildfire given that wildfire is not constant through an area you know, we have wind changes, some areas um, are barely touched while others are completely obliterated. Yeah, it's a good question. So in the modeling we use, the we've got a, a library of climate. And in the case for the modeling we did, we had 50 years of daily records of climate with all the variations in humidity, temperature, wind speeds, wind directions, and those all influence how wildfires spread and in the model so the direction of the fire will be driven by the weather and the weather of a particular run so you might have a fire spreading from the north northwest south you know that southwest change and so that all based on the the weather data that we have for the region historical weather data and then we've got the role of aspect and topography slope and so forth and lakes and rivers and all those fuel breaks that are in there that affect how the fire may spread. But at the end of the day, it's a stochastic process where we do lots of simulations and fires are randomly started. And if they, if a fire starts on a day, which say was like the Black Saturday or even some of the really extreme weather we had in 2019-20 fire season, those fires can spread quite largely across the landscape. 
Now the the fire spread in these models, I wouldn't use to predict house loss, for example. They're a lot coarser than some of the more detailed models that are out there. To, but they do give you a, a impact of the kind of size and patterns of of fires that you get in a landscape, in these landscapes anyway. So that's how we that's how the modeling accounts for it. And then the impact of the fire is uh, dependent on the age, the type of vegetation, the age of the vegetation. For example, we use the work of David Lindemeyer and Chris Taylor on effective forest age on does a forest survive or not. Um, all the you know, all the science that's out there that we can to ensure that the models are impacting the the fires are being as realistic as possible. I hope that answered your question. Yes, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Okay, and Gail, did you have a question that you wanted to ask to Ben and Cara while you're here? Uh, yes, I do. Okay. Um, so, Ben or Cara, has any research been carried out on the effects of smoke from planned burns on greater gliders? So, given that humans suffer from inhalation of smoke for the particles, it would seem that it should also affect um, greater gliders. And also, then we also had the death of smoky mice from smoke from the Canberra fires from a great distance away. Um, so that's part of my question. And the other bit is, do we know if the smoke coats um, eucalypt leaves and makes them unpalatable? Thanks. Um, I can start by saying that we don't know a lot about how smoke affects greater gliders. I'm not aware of any work that's been directly done on that question. Um, and the same goes for whether or not there are any impacts of like smoke or soot on leaves. I do know that when fires reach the canopy and burn the leaves, that creates an immediate issue for greater gliders in terms of a loss of food. And I have seen out in a colleague's near their property near Talaganda National Park after the fires there, um, mass fatalities from greater gliders after there was canopy scorch and presumably the greater gliders starved to death. Um, and it happened fairly rapidly over the course of a few days after the fire, even though they survived the immediate fire event. And that's, that's kind of all I know in that space. And Ben, did you wanna also add to that? Uh, yeah, I would have just sort of said the same thing. I'm not aware of any research in that direction, so I cannot really comment on that. Okay, no problem. Thank you so much for your questions, Gail. Well, I wanted to know then is this should be should this be an area that we are carrying out research in? Is there a gap here? Yeah, I you know I think the fire issues are incredibly important to greater gliders. I'm not sure if you heard the last um, meeting with David Lindenmeyer, but um, there is no doubt that that's a serious issue for these animals. And I think there's also still a lot in the space of understanding how fire impacts food, both in the short and longer term that we need to get a better handle on. I think greater gliders are sensitive to a number of things. Um, and if we continue to see the kind of extreme weather events we have been seeing, then it's pretty bad news for them. And I don't even know if, if smoke will have a chance to to do bad things because the fire itself and the lack of food is doing a pretty good job by itself of, of killing off 
large populations of greater gliders. That being said, Gail, I think, you know, where you've got a matrix or a mosaic of fire severity, so where patches of forest do survive and you've got your foliage intact, if that's a, you know, potential that you could have those effects on the surviving populations in the unburned areas. I mean, I think it's a good, it's a good question. It's a nice, to, that could be tested. It'd be difficult to test um, in the moment, but I guess you could use plan burning. Uh, where they do plan burn near glider habitats. For example, in the wombat there, I know that's a, a concern is around the plan burning in, in greater gliders. So there is a, bit, a way you could probably monitor that and test it. But at the moment, yeah, I haven't come across anything either on that. And I think it, um, but it would be interesting to know uh, given most of the impact, say in plan burning context, well, hopefully it would just be the understory, but releasing the smoke versus consuming the canopy. That being said, we do know that that happens, um, that plant burns do go up in the canopy. And that case would, what Cara was saying, that you'd be losing food resources quite quickly then. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gail. Thanks, guys. Um, we've, received two, um, we've received two questions via the chat from the user called ASUS. I've just asked if you'd like to unmute to ask your questions if you're there. Yep. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. Um, I've just got some questions for Ben, and I just want to say um, thanks to all the speakers. You guys had really um, good talks, and it was excellent to listen to your research. Um, just one, two questions. One was when you um, looked at, Ben, the area that is good for greater glider in, like, looking at climate change now so the area's been reduced I can't remember how many hectares it was did you also look at um, the forest age when you overlaid what was um, what was good habitat uh, so for, for our study in East Gippsland we have um, taken age into account in a way that we haven't surveyed areas that were either locked or burned in the last 40 years. And then we also had um, laid forest uh, survey sites into national parks, which would all be old growth forests. Uh, so we have taken that not directly into account, uh, the forest age as a, a modeling variable, but we do see that trend of, yeah, greater glider is an old growth uh, forest dependent species and it really dwells in those areas best. Um, and that's what we observed throughout the elevational gradient as you go higher up in, in East Gippsland in the elevation, for example, into those old growth forests up in Hernanda National Park or even outside the National Park there, but where we have these really old big trees uh, that have persisted over time is where you find the highest densities and also the best habitat. But those old forests are also those forest types are also associated with the climate that we have up there, which is favorable for both the, the plant species and, and the, the fauna that lives there. Um, and just to like, just is, so your hectare count, so was that with consideration of the old growth forests and the older forest types or the above 40 years, or was that just the climate modeling of where would be good not taking into account forest age, like when you talk about it in your paper, just out of interest, because to get 
a right now sort of scenario of what's good for green. Yeah, bio. so the input data that went into our landscape model that is um, survey data that has been done in, in sites that were not disturbed previously as well. There, there was some that were close mm -hmm. to disturbed areas that had fire impact or not, but um, mainly also because of, of the way that the surveys are conducted, it's really hard to survey them in non-old growth or non-older native forests. So um, that, that would have been taken into account through the surveys as well. Yeah. Just, yeah. just to, along with it, so just the, you know, our assumption around the sampling is we sampled mature, not all of them were old growth forests, but mature yeah. forests. Um, some had definitely most had old growth trees in them, but the, um, the, the presumption would be any logged area or recently burnt area in these areas, you would discount as habitat, even if it aligned with a climatic suitability, if it's been uh, recently logged or burnt, uh, particularly high severity burn, you wouldn't count that as being a suitable habitat. You know, so you have to view the, you know, through the two kind of multiple filters there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was just wondering about the hectare count. Um, thanks. Um, and also just um, a question about the nitrogen in the plants and what you saw through the infrared. I was just wondering if you looked at that at different times of the year as, or just at one time. And if you did, if you saw differences and um, if there were differences, if there was any areas that you saw that it was only, the trees only provided the appropriate nitrogen at certain times of the years and not others? Yeah, no, we were not able to look at different times of the year just because of the survey effort that, that we had, because we were collecting leaf samples, we were doing the, the, the drone flights with the UAV and the multispectral. So we did all our samples sort of at the height of the growing season to get maximum sort of uh, leaf maturity to, to capture that. But there is a few, um, I think there is a few um, studies into the, the change of nitrogen over the year. You also have an effect of, of climate change on, on nitrogen, given that there's higher uh, carbon levels in, in the air and the trees take up more carbon than nitrogen, for example. But for us, we couldn't account for that, but that would really be an interesting thing to do to, to not only do, do these um, sort of quantifications of nitrogen just at the growing season, peak of the growing season, but also during other times of the year. Um, but yeah, we couldn't get that in as well. It's a lot of work to also process all that, um, all those samples. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for your questions. Uh, I'm going to ask Bert to unmute and ask his question if you're like, if you're able to Bert, if you can hear us. Uh, yeah, can you hear me, Sasha? Yes, we can. Thank you. Go ahead. Um, now, which question? Um, either of them. <laughs> so, either. Just generally, yeah. In 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 East Gippsland, um, th there appears to be have been, uh, well, generally a, a bit of a replacement um, of some species by silvertop ash, which is such a good colonizer post disturbance. Um, does anyone have thoughts on how this might be impacting future habitat suitability, given the likely lower nutritional value of silvertop ash eucalyptus ebri, um, 
you know, whether it's from fire or from logging, just some disturbance and, and what long-term impact that might have. Just at a really simplistic level, it would appear to make what Ben has said is already somewhat marginal habitat, um, perhaps even, even more so. Yeah, so the interesting thing we observed in East Gippsland with the Zaberai forest was that, so Zaberai was throughout our surveys the species with the lowest levels of nitrogen, and we had 17 species that we looked at. And those areas where in the lowlands we had greater gliders presence, those were Zaberai forests with very huge remnant immunalis or Cypelocarpa in them, which are on the highest sort of um, grade of, of nitrogen. And um, I'd assume if, if through fires or more frequent fires, those large trees that are clearly the habitat trees in those areas, because they would also have most, most hollows and nesting space, if they would be lost and replaced with zebrae only, you, you'd, you'd lose a big chunk of the suitability in, in those areas down there for sure. Um, I can speak about that a bit as well. We, um, we did a study where we looked at uh, the, relationship between Seabri and another eucalypt fullivore, which is a koala on the south coast. And it is a similar situation there to what you see in East Gippsland. There's large areas where Seabri is becoming the dominant and even a monoculture kind of species. And it is a disturbance adapted tree. So it comes back much thicker after logging and fire. Um, and in those forests that are dominated by Seabri that have more than 60% Seabri, actually we see a real drop off to the point where the, you don't find koalas anymore. And I know that people who have been doing surveys with greater gliders in Victoria where Seabri is dominant see a similar lack of greater gliders in those forests. And we looked at the nutritional quality of the trees and there, there's a couple different measures that we look at. So. Things like nitrogen, um, while the, there's a relationship with some species in total nitrogen, a measure of available nitrogen, which is what's actually digestible when you consider the binding of nitrogen to tannins in a leaf, um, often has a stronger relationship to the quality of food and the nutrient that the animal is trying to get um, that's limiting for them. Um, so in terms of available nitrogen, Seabri is also one of the lowest uh, quality tree species out there. But there's a secondary compound that is um, a deterrent for many herbivores, and that's called unsubstituted burine flavonones, or UBFs, and my colleague Karen Ford was instrumental in helping to identify those and the group of monoclips that Seabri belongs to, or the group of eucalypts, which are called monoclips um, that Seabri belongs to. And when those become very high, we know that animals like koalas eat less of them, and that's probably too true for greater gliders as well, but we need to do some more work to be certain of that. Um, but kind of no matter which way you split it, compared to the other tree species out there, Seabri looks like very bad quality food, and it's unfortunate because it does become dominant, and it's quite likely creating um, just food deserts, like forests that are unpalatable for the animals. So something does need to be done to address that. Yeah, and I, I think this, you know, particularly in logged areas um, in East Gippsland, there has been that big shift towards either Sabri or Glibidii. So those those two species have done very well at the at the, you know, the, the loss of the hardwoods that would have been in the other um, iron barks and uh, boxes and other gums. And that's a, that's an issue, you know, and one of the stuff, sort of work that Ben and I've been doing there with the greater gliders showed is around a 25% of your, of your forest has to have greater than 1% nitrogen 
So this is some stuff that's going to be coming mm -hmm. out shortly. And that kind of aligns with Kara's point with the koalas around that, how much habitat do you need? And so what it points to is from thinking about restoration of these forests, you know, over the last hundred years or more, there's been this kind of selective logging of the hardwoods, those other species out, and then the more industrial logging is essentially push the systems towards these more monocultures. And that's going to be impacting then the foraging habitat for these gliders. Uh, yeah, so getting those, you know, what could you do to get at least 25% or more of these areas back into gums and other species with high nitrogen, available nitrogen, um, would be a, a really important question to think about in the going forward in the future. Could, could I um, follow up just quickly the, the comment that that seems to be like that's a massive landscape scale change and long term and coupled with if I remember correctly, Sibari isn't doesn't have a great propensity for hollow formation. I mean, the trees don't get that big, so that's a that's a massive shift in the landscape. I mean, I, I guess it's not a question, but just a realization that I hadn't yeah. really pinned down before. But thanks, thanks for your answers. Well, we have seen some really large Sibari in that landscape, particularly as you move to higher elevation. You get some really really big ones with lots of hollows in them. You know, but those forests up there, where those exist, are you know probably more in line with the. They haven't been um, seed treated or clear fell, essentially even age harvested. Um, you know, they're more sitting in the kind of system what is a multi-age forest structure, which is the ecological kind of. You know, that's the natural pattern of dynamics in those forests up there. And you do see some really large ones, but they're not alone, right? They're mixed in with really large gums and really large stringy barks. And you get these really complex forests that's got young and old trees and it provides the hollows and the foraging for those, those gliders. So they can provide nesting habitat for gliders in those forests, but you've got all that other stuff, the gums mm -hmm. in particular and the peppermints, which are a really important element in this actually. Um, you know, they feed on these gums and stuff, but they also like to go feed on the peppermints because they don't have those nasties in them that uh, Cara was mentioning. So it's a nice you they, know, balance. Yeah, yeah they, they do actually, um, they, they like the peppermints, absolutely, particularly like uh, eucalyptus radiata, but they do have nasties in them. <laughs> um, both yeah. the subgenre do, um, the main subgenres. In fact, probably all plants do to some degree that haven't been cultivated by humans to get rid of them. Uh, it's just the animals have adapted to specialize usually in one or the other, or sometimes maybe they're less of a specialist, but a bit of one and then a bit of another so that they don't reach their limit of what they can handle in either of those groups. But it is a little bit of a misunderstanding that the, they eat something because it doesn't have toxins. It's more like they eat it because they're able to deal with those particular toxins, but another species might not be able to, and that allows them to separate their niches according to um, their diet. Thank you so much for the questions, Bert. They were great. Uh, I'd like to ask Teresa Eyre to unmute. And if you can hear us, Teresa, um, go ahead with your question. Oh, thanks, Sasha. Yes, I just was wondering, um, question probably for Carol Ben. Um, given in Queensland, we've got um, warmer temperatures anyway, and we've and it's predicted, uh, climate change predicted to have, um, warmer nights for longer, times of the year do you think 
that's going to be more problematic for our population, our northern populations, uh, greater gladder populations, as compared to the, the, um, the more southerly populations? Sorry, so the question is, do you think climate change is, or do we think climate change is going to be more of an issue up north and down south? Is that right? Am I understanding that? Correctly? Yeah, for with regard to the um, thermoregulation and, and their diet. Um, so the short answer to that is no, um, because the animals are different in the north and the south. In fact, um, we know now that they're not even the same species. So P, P. volans minor is actually P. minor, and um, P. volans volans is, is still P. volans volans. It's a subspecies of P. volans, but it's not the same animal. Physiologically, they're different, and they're adapted to their climate. So that means the animals that are down in the south, um, they have a, a lower temperature tolerance in terms of when they start being impacted by um, the ambient temperature. And it's probably similarly scaled for the northern animals so they can handle higher temperatures, but they too have a threshold and that's in line with the environmental temperature. So even though it's gonna be hotter and more humid up north, those animals are more physiologically adapted to those conditions. They're not the same animal as what we have in the south. Um, but they also have a limit. So both animals have limits. Both animals are going to be impacted by climate change. It's getting hotter in both places. And in the south, when you go above 20 degrees, the animal has to start doing things actively, um, which requires energy to cool itself. And when you have an animal like a greater glider that doesn't have a lot of energy stores, it can't do that for very long before it starts suffering adverse consequences from either not having enough sugar or enough water to keep using its energy to stay cool. So surprisingly low temperatures in the south are enough to cause that species of greater glider problems. I hope I answered your question. Yes, thank you. I, I was um, more referring not to the subspecies, the Northern Queensland subspecies, no, but I, um, around even just over the border, maybe Northeast New South Wales sure. as well. Yeah, so so even even those animals, there's, there's kind of a, a gradation of physiology of greater gliders that goes along with their climate. We have a PhD student, um, Denise, who I think is here today, actually, she might be able to talk a little bit about that too. I think she's in the audience, but she's been looking at their energetics across their range in relation to something called Bergman's rule, um, which is basically how animals um, are, their body size changes so that they can dissipate heat differently in different environments. And they're altered by that environment so that they're more fit for it. And she was looking at greater gliders across the range and how they change um, and in the process happened to discover that they are actually multiple species. And Sasha, that's that's um, been accepted now, so we can talk about it, um, but only just got there. So there will be a paper coming out very soon in Nature Scientific re Reports that shows that the greater glider, not just subspecies, but there's at least three species and then probably two subspecies on top of that. Um, but they are physiologically different even in New South Wales and Victoria from one another. That's great, thank you, perfect. Thank you, Teresa. Uh, I'm gonna ask Tim Cooney to unmute his microphone and ask his question if you'd like. Hello, can you hear us, Tim? 
yes, sorry about that. Um, yeah, I was just interested. I've looked at a little bit of the literature that sort of estimates the uh, generation length of the greater glider at about seven years, but found um, some, some variations between sort of, you know, being in the wild. But I, I just wanted to put out to the panel was, um, how have you found in different populations? Do you think seven years is a good estimate? Um, and I'm thinking it purely in relation to, to looking at their decline over, over three generations. If you use different lengths, you could come up with different results. And so just your, your question is, how long do you need to look at a trend in a population for it to be a trend? Is that, is that what you're asking? It, it, it was more is seven years an adequate estimate um, for the different range of um, populations. I'm just trying to think if you're looking at um, uh, Volans Minor in um, North Queensland, is that a, a seven years generation length or, or the Victorian? I'm just wondering how people have experienced because I'm, I'm just going off some information from a, a seven mile beach population and I wasn't sure that it was you know, accurate or whether people had found different um, generation lengths in some of the populations that they were looking at in different geographic areas? Well, I, I'm not as familiar with the work for P minor up north. I know down south, um, David Lennon-Meyer studies have been uh, 20 going on to 30 years and they found, you know, 80% declines in occupancy of the sites over that time period. Um, I, I think you have to look at data, you know, along with not just one site, but in perspective of the other information that you might have available to and trying to make decisions about whether what you're seeing is unique or whether it's part of a general trend that's common in multiple places. But it's hard to make inferences about something based on one point, um, even if you have multiple years on that one point. But if it fits with a larger pattern, I think that, you know, you become more confident in what you're seeing. Yes, yeah. Now I was looking purely in respect to the um, IUCN criteria for the red list criteria for for looking at you know what what period of time the assessment should be undertaken to to what threat level status that it would um you know what thresholds it would it would uh, it would um, satisfy. Sure, I'm not sure how they come up with whatever limit or threshold they decide upon. I would assume hopefully with expert consultation, um, but I I really don't know what it would be for a greater glider, how long you would have to see something before you can be certain that that's the way it's going. I'm, I'm just not sure about that. Thank you for your question, Tim. I would like to ask um, Phil Marshall to unmute and ask your question, Phil. If you can uh, yep, Great. can you hear me? Yes. Yep, um, I've got a question for Craig. Um, I was just noting um, in your keynote, the large timescales that you were working with. Um, I was just wondering how you see your research on vegetation dynamics um, being used for conservation in the context of rapid decline of species, such as for the greater glider and leadbeater's possum, um, particularly compared to point in time protections from logging and other forest management, like buffering at animal detections or um, where habitat thresholds are met. Um, yeah, like zone 1A habitat. Yeah, so just uh, in, in it, we reported at uh, fifty-year time periods, but the model runs every is the annual model, and so as a as a output, you can stop the model at any time. So you could do it a, a yearly assessment if you would like. So that's the one of the strengths of that modeling framework that we've used. So um, you know, 
we can look at every year, every five years, every 10, every 50 years. For the paper, that presentation, we were interested in the kind of longer term dynamics. So, you know, what we, you know, found essentially is, you know, there was around 30,000 hectares of forest that have habitat for limiters in this case, that was really, really stable over those really long periods of time. And they transition, you know, from time period to time period at that broad scale. So those are, you know, it was an idea of our longer term refugia. Then we had that whole, long-term habitat, which we've argued that should be set aside and conserved. And then we have the, the transient habitat and that, and that transient habitats where those finer timescale changes are happening. And so to really un unpack that, we'd have to look every year uh, and we can do that with the modeling. And so it comes to the question you wanna ask and the tools that we have there, if we are interested in, so for example, we've actually done some simulations for the Threatened Species Commission around Ledbetter's Possum, looking at uh, the next uh, 30 years, every year, to see uh, you know, how the 2009 fire infected areas would recover and so forth. So depending on your question, what you want answered, those tools are are there to, we can go year by year if you would, if we if we like, and we could even put in specific, um, so logging coops, for example, if you want to know what a particular plan burn or logging operation or period of time would do, this can be actually put in the model and, and used to assess the impact as well. So there's quite a bit of flexibility. Now, what the modeling doesn't do, uh, for example, it doesn't have for greater, we've done this modeling a greater glider, uh, but we didn't, it doesn't have the effect of the effect of climate on the physiology of the glider or the effect of climate change on the nutrition of the trees. And those are other elements that would need to be added in on top of that. And for Ledbetter's possum, other elements of predation, for example, uh, feral species, uh, cats or whatever it may be that may have on the possums, those aren't in there, but so you'd have to add those in on top of that. So there are limitations, but to get an understanding of the broad changes in forest structure and the habitat requirements that the species needs, it provides a, a framework to ask these bigger scale questions over short or long time frames. So I would say it's a it's a nice way of testing a lot of these drivers and factors that we're talking about in the in the sessions yesterday and today and, and just in general uh, it provides a framework for for exploring those and seeing how sensitive those habitat features are. Thank you, Phil. I'm going to ask Linda to unmute and ask a question if you'd like. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you, Linda. Hi, thanks for taking my question and great presentations, everyone. Really appreciated it. Uh, my question is uh, just a, a general research one about whether anyone's done any measurements of temperatures that are actually reached in, in potentially in tree hollows during cool burns. Um, for example, by thermoregulation tape or um, thermosensitive tape, I should say, or, or whatever. So I think um, with different mitigation measures being proposed as a management tool by the department during cool burns, the more information that we have about what's actually happening during a cool burn would be really useful. So I don't know of any data that's been collected during a cool burn, um, but again, uh, Denise McGregor, who's in this um, session here, her PhD part of it involved putting uh, eye buttons in greater glider hollows and putting them outside those hollows to look at differences between inside and outside. And we just started to look at that data now. Um, so we actually do know 
what kind of temperatures hollows get to and how that differs from the outside. And it does look like there's a bit of a lag time and they do heat up, but th they also cool down surprisingly quickly because we've been trying to make thermally insulated nest boxes. And one of the issues that we've had is that they heat up slower, but then they cool down slower and the trees don't seem to be sharing that property. They seem to cool down quite quickly. Um, but there's also a lot of variability and a lot of difference between trees and greater gliders use lots of different hollows and why they select the ones that they're using for a particular day, it's not clear either. I think that's a really good question to look at, you know, what happens to those temperatures when you're changing the microclimate with a burn and is that causing problems for greater gliders that are trying to stay in those hollows during that time? And I don't know the answer to that, but we are starting to look at um, the thermal properties of hollows now, and that's definitely on our radar. Right, yeah, because it, it's, I just find it interesting that in things like the, um, the action statement that, or in correspondence that we've had with the department, that they do talk about raking around trees and, and things like that. So trying to keep temperatures down, but do we actually know if that's having any impact? Yeah. Thanks for that. Thank you for your question, Linda. I'm going to ask Paul McGregor to unmute and go ahead with your question if you'd like, Paul. Thanks, can you hear me? Yes, we can. So my question relates to Tellerock State Forest, which is, <clears throat> we've been surveying in the last few weeks and found high levels of greater glider. The forest is mixed species, 400 to 600 above sea level. The eucalypts are mostly southern blue gum and red stringy bark. What are the panelists' opinions of these species as Food color for food quality of the leaves for greater gliders and also the hollow formation potential of these people. Well, stringy barks, I don't think, are very renowned for their ability to make hollows. I don't, I can't think of um, really good hollow bearing stringy barks. I don't know, do obliqua, if they get big enough, Craig, do they make hollows? Uh, yep, yeah, we see quite a few uh, in, in obliqua. Um, red stringy bark of we don't. We didn't have many, much of that. I don't think yeah. in our, so our sites, so I, I can't really speak to that that one. Yeah, yeah macrorinca, which I assume would be the same red stringy bark you have up yeah. here, and where we are around here doesn't make hollows that I'm aware of. And it also has, um, in terms of food quality, I've looked at that more in relation to koalas actually than I have with greater gliders, um, more extensively with the tree species. And there are different animals and they do eat different things, um, but it's definitely not a preferred food species that red stringy bark for koalas. Um, and the other species, I think that there's still like what your question highlights is the fact that we still know very little about the range of species that greater gliders eat and what some of their limitations might be in the species that they can eat because even even trees that an animal will feed from because of the mix of nutrients and toxins there there's often limits in how much they can consume so there's a lot of baseline work that we still need to do to get answers to those questions so that we are better at knowing what is habitat and how to rank the quality of habitat based on food for animals like the greater glider and Ben can talk about this probably better. We had blue gum in our plots, some of our plots in East Gippsland, and they had quite high nitrogen in them. And we did observe greater gliders in plots with blue gum, um, but that's a small sample size. So I would caution, uh, and I, I actually I actually saw the glider in that plot. I didn't see the glider feeding on those blue gum leaves. So that's like, you know, but they're definitely, we're in a we're in a plot that had mess made in blue gum in it. Um, 
you know, they do have high nitrogen and available nitrogen in them. Uh, stringy barks are really interesting because even Messmate um, has a really wide range of where you could find the amount of nitrogen in that plant. And we know Glabidia was very low. So the stringy barks themselves, we'd actually have to test it, that one out specifically, um, but they were really ranging in variability. And so you did have some obliqua, for example, that had really high nitrogen enough that you think the gliders would be feeding in. We actually observed gliders in obliqua trees as well. Uh, but I think that's going to be a site question as much as a tree question, because some of the nitrogen does vary not only by species, but the topography and the underlying lithology of the sites are really important. So there's a connection there. So even if the tree can have a lot of nitrogen in its leaves, if the soil doesn't have it, the trees aren't going to have it. So that's another complication to think about in at this site, potentially. So you were saying that the we um, have elevation seen there is about or in there. Oh, sorry, <laughs> everyone talking at the same time. Were you saying that the elevation there in Talarook is around five, six hundred meters? Was that right? Uh, four to six hundred. Yeah, mostly yeah, five hundred. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's sort of the, the elevational range. So we got our obliquas, for example, throughout the elevational range, but we only picked up greater gliders sort of at that medium to high elevation. So starting at five, six hundred meters, you get more observations in and the, the nitrogen seems to increase based on site productivity. So that might just be the, the sweet spot that, that you're in there, maybe. Um, I would also point out that there's not a well-established relationship yet between leaf chemistry and soil chemistry because there tends to be a lot higher nitrogen in the soil than what you ever find in a eucalypt leaf. There's only one to two percent in a eucalypt leaf, so there's not a, a limiting ability in terms of nitrogen soil to leaf. There's always more there. Something else is keeping those leaves from taking up more, um, whether they would ever want to, even if they could. And we found that some of like the highest nitrogen concentration and in some of the eucalypts that we've measured, like from Biminalis, have been growing in sand, which is some of the poorest nutritional quality soil. Um, so I think there can be um, detrimental impacts of that, like thinking in terms of assessing habitat and saying it doesn't have good quality soil, so it can't be high quality habitat. I think it's really a site-specific issue. It, some trees prefer certain soil types and some animals prefer certain trees. And I think that drives things probably more strongly than a link between the soil and the leaves. But there's a lot more that we need to look at to understand that. And so we're starting a project in the Central Highlands where we're going to measure soil chemistry and leaf chemistry at a number of sites where we have all the same species to get rid of that variability to see if we can see a relationship there. Um, but I would just say that doesn't always hold true. And also there's really big differences in chemotypes, even within the same species across different areas. So what you might have in one place is good food because that species there, that species might look totally different in another area chemically. And it's not just the nutrients, but also the secondary compounds that the trees make that determine whether they're palatable and how much an animal can eat. So even though an animal might, or even though a plant might look very nutritious from a nitrogen perspective, it might not be something an animal can eat very much of if it has certain chemicals in it that make it um, unpalatable for the animals there. So it's a bit, it's very complicated situation. Great. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for your amazing questions.
Uh, I'll just remind everyone that uh, Ben, Craig, and Cara's videos, keynotes are up on the BioLinks Alliance YouTube channel, which you should have received a couple of emails for. Um, so feel free to watch those if you haven't watched one or any of them, as well as the other keynotes. Um, and yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for participating. Ben, Craig, Cara, thank you so much for your brilliant knowledge. We really appreciate you have, having you on board for this session, and I hope it was valuable. So we'll end it there. Have a good morning, everyone. Thanks Thank for you. having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Greater and Squirrel Gladys Symposium was proudly presented by BioLinks Alliance in conjunction with Strathbogie Ranges Conservation Management Network and Wombat Forest Care, and made possible through generous sponsorship from the Ross Trust, Pool of Dreams, Clara Lysa's Gift, and the Great Eastern Ranges.